There's a solitary, humble, wooden structure on a windswept hill in rural New England. To open the door is to engage our minds, our hearts, and our imaginations. In this place, preachers and professors, past and present, come alive as they walk the aisle, ascend the pulpit stairs, and teach. From theology, from history, and from the Word of God, welcome to the Saybrook Meeting House, an audio production of Saybrook Ministries. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asim. God, do not keep silent, do not be deaf. God, do not be quiet. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered. For they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibel, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Even Assyria has joined them. They lend support to the sons of Lot. Deal with them as you did with Midian as you did with Sisera and Jabin at the Kaishan River. They were destroyed at Endor. They became manure for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their tribal leaders like Zeba and Salmuna, who said, let us seize God's pastures for ourselves. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like straw before the wind. As fire burns a forest, as a flame blazes through mountains, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, Lord. Let them be put to shame and terrified forever. Let them perish in disgrace. May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Good morning, everybody. You may be seated. If we have any visitors today or anybody joining us online that hasn't joined us before, I'm Ben, one of the elders today and worship director. Pleased to be bringing the message as we continue working through Psalm 80 through 89. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let's wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered. For they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you. Just over one week ago, a conspiracy against the nation of Israel blossomed into bloody reality. Palestinian militants from Hamas successfully breached Israel's security measures with 
exceedingly deadly effect, and this resulted in the worst day of Jewish casualties, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, since the Holocaust. For comparison, just so you can wrap your mind around it, those of us who lived through 9-11, imagine that 9-11 wasn't 3,000 casualties, it was 30,000 casualties. That's what happened last week. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, declared war on Hamas very quickly, and we're now barely a week into a situation that is fraught with danger on every side and whose result are in the Lord's hands. We don't know how it's going to end out. Here's a few reminders. Reminder number one, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, Pray for peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. Reminder number two, the Apostle Paul was a Jew. So the greatest of the apostles, the author of much of our New Testament, was a Jew before he became a Christian. And he wasn't a nominal Jew. If you recall from our series in Acts, or if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you might remember in Acts 22, there's this uproar and hubbub as Paul's attempting to give his testimony in front of his Jewish brothers and sisters. Finally, when the crowd has calmed down enough to let him speak his peace, this is what Paul says. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way. That was a euphemistic phrase for Christians, the way. Hounding some to death, this is Paul talking, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so, for I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that's his name before he was Paul, why are you persecuting me? Notice when Jesus tells him that. Where is Jesus? He's risen and he's at the right hand of the Father. But he's so close, closely identified with his children that he tells Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you, Lord? That's a poker tell. I asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. Paul continues, the people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. 
And that very moment I could see him. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. So remember, the Apostle Paul is the most famous convert to Christianity in the history of the church, and he was a Jew. Reminder number three, pray for the Jews to come to Christ. We ought to long for Jews to come to Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 10. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. You can hear his heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters. And finally, reminder number four, God has not forgotten about the Jews. Those of us who are Gentiles, which simply means non-Jewish by faith or ethnicity, should not think that the gospel going around the world to the Gentiles means the Lord has forgotten about the Jews. Paul labors to make this point to the Christians in Rome when he writes his letter from chapter 11. This is what Paul says. This is to Christians in Rome, Gentile Christians. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too." But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. 
So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So, if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ, and so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God. But when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. That's Paul speaking to the Gentiles, so he's speaking to you and I. He labors to have us understand that. Now there are different interpretive lenses through which people read the Bible as a whole, trying to do the most honor to Scripture and to biblical interpretation and fidelity as a whole. So you end up in uh, a philosophy of interpretation, trying to make sense, the best sense of the whole text. And there are different schools of thought. I'm going to list just a few of the main ones. Not, you don't have to know what they mean or memorize it or anything like that. I'm just letting you know there are different schools of thought. There's classic dispensationalism, there's revised dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, progressive covenantalism, there's covenant theology, there's Christian restorationism. So Romans 11, which I just read, might have a different color depending on the interpretive lens through which you're reading Scripture. However, one thing all Christians can agree on is this. The area known as the Holy Land, the current nation of Israel, has a divine importance that cannot be denied. Now, we know that the temple of the Holy Spirit is now in every believer, and it's not located, as it once was, a thousand feet west of the Garden of Gethsemane on the Temple Mount. We know this from Paul. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, he says who lives in you and was given to you by God. We know this from Peter. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. And we know this from what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well. Believe me, dear woman, 
The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Everything that Paul and Peter and Jesus said is, of course, true. And none of that takes away from two simple, undeniable facts. Israel is a unique nation in human history, and the Jews are a unique people in human history. Now, if you knew nothing about world history, you would be able to deduce what I just said by simply looking at the irrational and unified and demonic opposition that Israel and the Jews have undergone in the past and continue to undergo to this very day. This last week, I consulted the updated database containing all the resolutions passed by the United Nations Human Rights Council, which began its work in 2006. So since 2006, 530 of those resolutions have been condemnatory of one nation or another. Out of those 530 resolutions, 281 were against Israel. The United Nations Human Rights Council has drafted 281 articles of condemnation against Israel since 2006. By comparison, North Korea, 24 times. Russia, 31 times. United States, 10 times. China, zero. So that tells you all you need to know about the moral bankruptcy of the United Nations Human Rights Council. Back in 1968, the Palestinian Charter, uh, since 1968 rather, the Palestinian Charter has called for the destruction of Israel. In 1998, it appeared that international efforts had successfully persuaded Palestinian leaders to modify the charter, removing those parts of it that call for the murdering of Israel dead. But it turned out that those assurances from the PLO were similar to the assurances that your child gives you that they are going to clean their room as they refuse to make eye contact and tie their fingers behind their back. As a result, the Charter to this day still calls for the destruction of Israel. And as we saw last week, the Palestinian militants and uh, Islamic extremists in multiple nations surrounding Israel are very clear on the mission and mandate to do whatever they can to make Israel extinct. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, 
Let's wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered, for they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you. That's Psalm 83, today's text, which, by the way, we planned in the calendar about a year ago. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. This is precisely the kind of thing that Asaph was praying and singing about to God nearly 3,000 years ago in Psalm 83. So I believe when the Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and by extension to the people of Israel, I don't have to issue a bunch of uh, eschatological or hermeneutical caveats. Yes, I will pray for Israel. Yes, I will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes, I will pray for the Jews. That's simply biblical. That shouldn't be hard for us. The rest of today's message will have five parts, and normally I would preview those five parts for you right now, but I've erred on the side of it. I'd just like you to follow along if you could. I usually don't encourage you to write notes or write things down. You might consider doing that today. There's going to be some verses and references that you may want to uh, look up later for your own edification. So part one, a few observations about Psalm 83. Um, As you're going through the Psalms consecutively, if you were to read through them consecutively, Psalm 83 is the last one written by Asaph. So he wrote Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83. At the beginning of this sermon series, some of you probably remember in When James preached on Psalm 80, he did a great background study on who is Asaph, how should we understand when it says a psalm of Asaph, how are we to understand that. Please go back and review that if you didn't get a chance to see that message. That helps give context to your understanding of the Bible. Something else we should know about this psalm, uh, one psalm scholar, uh, William Van Gemeren, he helps us understand the outline of the psalm by explaining that its form is concentric. Now, here's how it's organized. Prayer for God's action, verse 1. Plotting of the enemies, verses 2 through 4. Greatness of the opposition, 5 through 8. Great acts of God in Israel's history, 9 through 12. Shaming of the enemies, 13 through 16. And prayer for God's action, again, 17 through 18. So you see those prime markers by the latter CBA. So what's, what's meant by concentric then is A echoes A, B echoes B, and C echoes C. And as we note these patterns and structures, structures, these are all helpful bits of data for us to understand our Bibles better. What words are the divinely inspired authors choosing to use? What pivot points are they putting in the text? This is especially important when you're talking about Hebrew poetry and you're talking about the major and minor prophets and the Psalms, because the Hebrew arrangements are different than poetry in the English. So all these things will help you understand, oh, this just isn't a random smattering of phrases. He's got a structure that he's following. Now, the nations and the peoples listed in this psalm, many of them are probably foreign to our ears, but that's, this is like a murderer's row lineup of Old Testament infamy. And I'm going to mention just a few examples. And as I do so, you will note that in the tragic storyline of humanity, sin begets sin. First, the Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. Genesis 19 records the sinful inception of these rebel nations. In the narrative, 
This is after Lot and his family were rescued by divine intervention from Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember how much grace the Lord showed um, that in that conversation that was had, or this almost bartering and bargaining. Well, how about if there's 10 righteous people? How about if there's eight righteous people? Will he, okay. So the, know that before what I'm going, about to read, the Lord has completely rescued, miraculously, Lot and his children from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Starting at verse 30 in Genesis 19, Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. How does that sound? Is that a good idea? So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up, because he was drunk. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him, and we can preserve our father's line. That night, they again got their father to drink wine, and the younger went and slept with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, and these were, if Israel had an arch enemy, it was the Edomites. And you recall that this whole thing started because Esau despised his birthright, which was a blessing and a gift from God, because he wanted his brother soup. The Ishmaelites were descendants of Ishmael, son of Abraham and Hagar. Now, you recall that that union between Abraham and Hagar was a result of a conspiracy of doubt and unbelief on the part of Sarah and Abraham. They didn't want to wait for God to fulfill the promise. Well, let's figure it out on our own. Here, sleep with our servant. And the story of that debacle reverberated even down to the time of the early church. We read in Galatians 4.29, but you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. As for the Philistines, I always remember as a a very young man, uh, when my dad was in... uh, full-throated, you know, frustration or anger about something, he would utter this phrase. He says, I feel like smiting the Philistines hip and thigh. (laughs) Straight out of the King James. So if you want to know about the Philistines, look to Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and you see this outsized influence that this thorn, this intractable thorn in the southwest side of Israel had. Between those three books, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, Philistia, the Philistines are mentioned 121 times. 
they were a problem. So of all these assembled enemies, those were just a few examples, the great psalm scholar William Plumer, he says this, their rancor was terrible, their malice diabolical, and their numbers vast. Other than that, they weren't a problem. (laughs) Several hundred years after Asaph set pen to parchment in Psalm 83, we discover in Ezekiel's divine oracles that Psalm 83 was prophetic in both senses of the term. It was forth-telling against the enemies of God, and it was foretelling against the enemies of God. This is the word of the Lord from Ezekiel 25, mentioning the very peoples we have discussed. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, face the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says. Because you said, aha, about my sanctuary when it was desecrated, about the land of Israel when it was laid waste, and about the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore I am about to give you to the people of the east as a possession. They will set up their encampments and pitch their tents among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a resting place for sheep. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the Lord God says. Because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced over the land of Israel with wholehearted contempt, therefore I am about to stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and eliminate you from the countries. I will destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Because Moab and Seir said, look, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I am about to expose Moab's flank, beginning with its frontier cities, the splendor of the land, Beth Jeshemoth, Baal Meon, Kiriathaim. I will give it along with Ammon to the people of the east as a possession so that Ammon will not be remembered among the nations. So I will execute judgments against Moab, and they will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Lord God says, because Edom acted vengefully against the house of Judah and incurred grievous guilt by taking revenge on them. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off both people and animals from it. I will make it a wasteland. They will fall by the sword from Teman to Dedan. I will take my vengeance on Edom through my people Israel, and they will deal with Edom according to my wrath and anger. So they will know my vengeance. This is the declaration of the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says. Because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with deep contempt, destroying because of their perpetual hatred, therefore, this is what the Lord God says. I am about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines, cutting off the Carathites and wiping out what remains of the coastal peoples. I will execute severe vengeance against them with furious rebukes. They will know that I am the Lord when I take my vengeance on them. There is no Philistia today. There is no Moab, no Edom. Part two, what is an imprecatory psalm? 
So there's, as many of you know, there's a whole variety of categories of psalms, psalms of praise, thanksgiving, lament, confession, and some psalms uh, are a couple different categories at the same time. While Psalm 83 is a lament, it's known primarily as an imprecatory psalm. So what's an imprecatory psalm? John Tweedale is a dean and professor of theology at Reformation Bible College, and he gives this little helpful brief summary. So listen to this. An imprecatory psalm is an invocation of divine cursing. And we see examples of these in Psalm 5, 6, 35, 69, and 109, all of which are cited in the New Testament. And he says curse pronouncements are... uh, Throughout the biblical canon, it isn't just the Old Testament. Jesus calls down woes of judgment on the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Paul pronounces an anathema, anathema in the Greek, that means to be damned, on anyone who preaches a different gospel. And the martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6 petition God to avenge their blood. Another Bible scholar says, in these prayers, the people of God prayed for the Lord's judgment, vengeance, and curse on their enemies. Their hatred for their enemies seems so opposed to the teaching of Jesus Christ and to the Christian emphasis on love that we must ask, well, how can a Christian read, sing, or pray the imprecatory Psalms? That's a great question. And that leads us to our next consideration. Part three, what do we do with imprecatory Psalms? So let's consider how imprecatory psalms can be entered into by, number one, the ancient Israelites, number two, Christians, and number three, Christ himself. So the ancient Israelites can enter into imprecatory psalms because theirs was a theocratic kingdom under the direct divine guidance and leadership of the Lord God. And therefore, as a nation, they acted uniquely on God's behalf. And so Israel's cause was God's cause. Israel's enemies were God's enemies. Christians can enter into imprecatory psalms because we can sing them in Christ. So when we put on Christ spiritually, think of it as we're donning a judicial robe when it comes to these imprecations. So we join in with our Savior's declarations of guilt and mercy. We're not singing these songs personally and vindictively. We're singing these songs in Christ. And Christ himself enters the imprecatory psalms because they are also messianic songs of Christ, speaking truth of himself as the one who will judge all things. Now, what gives us warrant to think that Christ speaks in these psalms? Remember, the Bible is all about Jesus, and the psalms are the songbook of Jesus. Pastor Terry Johnson, who writes extensively about worship and the psalms, compiled an impressive list that I'm going to fly through very quickly. Here are some prophetic and messianic references to Jesus' life and ministry in the psalms. I'm going to go real quick. Christ's deity, Psalm 8, 27, 45, 102. His incarnation, Psalm 22, 40, and 98. The adoration of the Magi, Psalm 72. 
Christ's baptism, Psalm 2. Christ's temptation, Psalm 91. Christ's ministry, Psalm 146. Christ's obedience, Psalm 40. Christ's teaching, Psalm 78. By the way, I'm not telling you the corresponding New Testament passage that references the psalm. These all have New Testament correspondence. And just consider Christ's final week. Christ's triumphal entry, Psalm 118. Christ's cleansing of the temple, Psalm 69. His betrayal by Judas, Psalm 41. His rejection, Psalm 35. His trial and mocking, Psalm 69. His crucifixion, Psalm 22. Suffering insults, Psalm 22. Him being forsaken, Psalm 22. His, the committal of his body, Psalm 31. His death, Psalm 34. His resurrection, Psalm 16. His ascension, Psalm 110. So additionally, when we're considering Christ and the imprecatory psalms, I wonder if you've ever considered that the Lord's Prayer, that Jesus taught us to pray, remember he said pray this way, is imprecatory by implication. What do I mean by that? Listen to what the Lord says. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, part of the full hallowing of God's name is the silencing of unholy lips. Your kingdom come. Part of God's kingdom coming in fullness is the dethroning and destruction of the prince of the power of the air. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, part of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven entails the thwarting of the wills of Satan, demons, and unbelievers. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Part of delivering us from evil is by God casting down Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren. And that's going to happen. Revelation 12. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, listen to the echoes of the Lord's prayer in here. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Part four, an imprecatory savior, the perfect judgment and hatred of Christ. So our Savior Jesus Christ will judge. It will not be a farce. It will not be a joke. It will be serious. And the saints of God will be extolling and praising and lifting his name on high as he does it. His judgments are perfect. They always have been. They always will be. Listen to Jesus as he speaks in the fifth chapter of John's gospel. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, that's himself, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him, listen to this, the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's going to say that 15 chapters later in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, as the incarnate Son of God, the will of the Father is what I came here to do. At the outset of Revelation in chapter 1, in case you weren't aware of this, many of you probably are, the letters to the churches uh, in Revelation are dictated by Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking in the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And this is what Jesus says through John, commending, applauding the church in Ephesus. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There are some things Jesus hates, and which he also expects us to hate. Within the context of holiness, within the context of righteousness, within the context of humility, within the context of godliness. Notice also that Jesus tells the church in Pergamum that they are in sin because some, not all, some hold to false teaching or multiple false teachings. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, on Judgment Day, if the elders of Refuge Church come before Christ with a clear and correct understanding of, for example, the Trinity, but we didn't know or we didn't care that half the congregation denied the Trinity, we'll have some explaining to do. Jesus doesn't just allow us to shrug our shoulders, well, what can you do? Now, the bar is a little bit higher than that. If you don't think that's clear, listen to what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So did you hear what he said? Jesus is saying, I understand you're not sexually immoral. I understand you're not a false prophet, but you're tolerating the woman who is. He's very clear. I'm not accusing you. What I'm accusing you of is tolerating the woman who is. Why does Jesus issue these warnings? He tells us in Revelation 3. As many as I love, never forget that, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Which leads us to part five. A redeeming Savior, the perfect forgiveness and love of Christ.
It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. 
I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That was from Corey Ten Boom's autobiography, The Hiding Place. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed, indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan, sin, death, and our flesh, what the Bible sometimes refers to as the old man before we knew Christ, are part of a doomed conspiracy. And the conspiracy is doomed because of the infinite love of our triune God. God the Father sending God the Son, and Father and Son sending God the Holy Spirit, displaying the truth and the wonder and the mystery of one God in three persons. I hope, John Newton wrote to a friend, that in the midst of all your activities, you find a little time to read the Bible and to wait at his mercy seat. It is good for us to draw near to him. It is an honor that he permits us to pray. And we shall surely find he is a God who hears prayer. Endeavor to be diligent in the means of grace, yet watch and strive against a legal spirit, which is always aiming to represent our Lord as a hard master, watching, as it were, to take advantage of us. But it is far otherwise. His name is love. He looks upon us with compassion. He knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. And when our infirmities prevail, he would not have us despair, but reminds us that we have an advocate with the Father who is able to pity, to pardon, and to save to the uttermost. Think of the names of our Lord. Does he not call himself a savior, a shepherd, a friend, and a husband? Has he not made known unto us his love, his blood, his righteousness, his promises, his power, and his grace, and all for our encouragement? Away with doubting, unbelieving thoughts. They will not only distress your heart, but weaken your hands. Be strong, therefore, not in yourself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. O God, be thou no longer still. Thy foes are leagued against thy law. Make bare thine arm on Zion's hill, great captain of our holy war. As Amalek and Ishmael had war forever with thy seed, so all the hosts of Rome and hell against thy son their armies lead. Though they're agreed in naught beside, against thy truth they all unite. They rave against the crucified and hate the gospel's growing might. By Kishon's brook, all Jabin's band at thy rebuke were swept away. O Lord, display thy mighty hand. A single stroke shall win the day. Come, rushing wind, the stubble chase. Come, sacred fire, the forest burn. Come, Lord, with all thy conquering grace. Rebellious hearts to Jesus turn. 
that men may know at once that thou, Jehovah, lovest truth right well, and that thy church shall never bow before the boastful gates of hell. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at the Saybrook Meeting House. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast. Saybrook Ministries' mission is to provide didactic and devotional content from the Christian faith delivered to the saints, recovered and refined by the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to visit saybrookministries.org for continually updated Christian content designed to inspire and invigorate our imagination and intellect. Join us next week for another journey to the Saybrook Meeting House. Until then, may God bless you.